Welcome. Please join us in reading scripture. Today's scripture is Psalm 73 in the ESV translation. Truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped, for I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. All in vain I have kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all day long I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. If I had said I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task until I went into the sanctuary of God. Then I discerned their end. Truly you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord my refuge, that I may tell of all your works. Thank you, Heavenly Father, for just bringing everyone here together today. Uh, we have all suffered in many struggles and trials in life. I pray that uh, you will fix your eyes on the Lord who is our refuge and our strength. He makes everything beautiful for the good and glory of his name. And just put your trust in him. We thank you and love you and ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, well, good morning, everybody. Welcome to Life Community Church. We're so glad you're here. You could be doing lots of other things, like uh, indulging yourself in the latest curling happenings in the Winter Olympics. Like, that's my, my bag, curling. I love it when it comes around <laughs> Uh, in the Winter Olympics. So good to see you. Uh, have you guys ever in your life uh, had a time where you saw something or experienced something that challenged a belief that you had in your life? That you had a belief that, that kind of you began to question it by what you saw, what you experienced, it created doubt in your life. I remember when I was 18, heading off to college, being thrust into the public university setting. And I'm telling you, when you live in Bluffton your whole life and you get into a collegiate setting, your eyes are open. There's lots of other realities out there. And that was a really trying time in my faith. I was just new in my relationship with the Lord. And there are things that I saw and complexities that I saw that uh, really made me question my faith. And it was a super stretching part of my life. And what came out of it, the Lord really wrestled in my heart, and I came away with a, a deeper and, 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 and more robust faith in the Lord than I had before. I would say that all of us have had scenarios, maybe you don't remember them, where it caused us to question the very nature of God and the purpose of man. Scenarios that just went, what? That's, I don't know if I believe that. Those situations can either cause us to dig into our faith and grow, or they can cause us to distance ourselves from a God that we are uncertain that we can understand. And this is what 
Asaph, who's the writer of this psalm in Psalm 73, this is what he's going to speak about today. It's a moment of crisis in his faith that is rooted in this very fundamental question that has tripped up believers for generations. Why do good things happen to bad people? That's the question that Asaph is going to wrestle with today. And that question is just interchangeably linked to the question, why does bad things happen to good people? They're the antithesis of each other. We're going to deal with, like, why why do bad people get rewards today? But I know this, where Asaph takes us answers a lot of things in either one of those questions. And so we're going to look through Psalm 73, and here's what Asaph is going to teach us today. He's going to teach us that as Christians, we're not immune to envy. We're not immune to envy, and the reality of envy in our hearts creates a bitterness of life. He goes on to show us about understanding God's perspective rather than our own perspective, to not get caught up into the trappings of this world. He, he gets to a place where, for, where he surrenders to the idea of God being good and just, and then he finally speaks of a a trust and faith in the Lord that recognizes that his portion is not just for here, but forever. And so let's get to know Asaph a little bit. Uh, He is one of three choir masters in the court of David. What that means is that he is a musician, he's a songwriter, he sings, he does rituals. It's said that, that Asaph's family would have been, uh, at minimum, uh, around for 600 years in that role. Just a great lineage uh, of people. And our modern day worship pastors are direct descendants from this man in his role. It's kind of cool to think about that. He served alongside uh, David. He served in his court, he served in Solomon's court, David's son, and then he served in Solomon's son's court, Rehoboam. And and so he's just along, he's around around for a long time. And he writes 12 Psalms. He wrote 12 Psalms, including Psalm 73. And so Asaph, he he gets to witness David, like a man that God says is after his own heart. He watches David pursue after God. And look, we've already talked about David makes some huge mistakes in his life. He falls and he gets to see all that. He gets to watch King Solomon moved from a good king to a bad king. Solomon takes this gift of wisdom that God bestows onto him, and he turns it to pursue worldly pleasures and accolades and wealth, and he enslaves scores of people to make those realities happen. And then he puts a tax burden on the kingdom of Israel that begins to fracture the kingdom in half. Asaph gets to see all of those things. His brother is the prophet Zechariah. And Zechariah is killed by what we believe to be the agents of Solomon because they would not keep quiet about the wickedness, Zechariah and Asaph, about the wickedness they saw in Solomon and Rehoboam. And it's, it's, he's just lived a life and he has seen corrupt officials come and go. He's seen prosperity given to people who he didn't think deserved it. And despite their folly, it seemed like God blessed them. And it is out of this lens that he writes this psalm. And he lays his cards on the table really early about what his deal is. He says, God, I know you're good, but I'm losing my step here. My feet are slipping because I am envious of what I see in the wicked. I am envious of the prosperity that I see in the wicked. Envy is the issue at hand. 
And the problem of envy is a very common problem that we have here. In this world, we are constantly walking in a tension tension between what we see and what we are called upon to believe. It doesn't mean that the things that we believe are are not true and real. It just means this, that there are some areas in our life that we walk by faith and not by sight. There are things that we see in this world that can often lead us to believe that they contradict the things that we believe. And that creates a tension within us, especially in this area of good things being rewarded to people that we just think don't deserve it. And so I was reading this week uh, in kind of my news feed, and this article about Waffle House came up, and I'll just let you know, I'm really intrigued by Waffle Houses. Uh, I don't know, they are cultural icons. I don't know if you know, in the South, maybe, who's been to a Waffle House before? Wow! No way! Okay, I just, I just view it as nasty, uh, but I guess I'm in the minority. Uh, I'm intrigued by it all. I, I talked to uh, Craig Courtright this week. He, he, he has made this bold claim that the best steaks in the world are at Waffle House. I think that's foolish. Uh, but I reached out to him this week, and he sent me a picture. He was eating at Waffle House, and he had a steak, and he was adamant that the steaks are the best there. Uh, I don't get it. But anyways, I guess what is not to like about a 24-hour restaurant that serves breakfast for cheap anytime you want it? I understand that. There was a story, though, particularly about a Waffle House in the state of Alabama. And, and there was a story that involved a regular customer that was generous and all the employees at this Waffle House. And so this is kind of what happened. True story. There was a regular attender, an eater at Nasty Waffle House, that, <laughs> that would uh, give to the employees lottery tickets and envelopes from time to time. Now, here's what you have to know. In the state of Alabama, lottery is illegal. It's one of two states, I think, that have uh, the practice of not having a lottery. And so he would go across the Florida line and buy these tickets for the, their jackpot. And he, from time to time, would give them to these Waffle House employees. So regular that these employees made a pact that if anybody ever won, that they would split the proceeds amongst the employees at Waffle House. I think you know where this is going. Enter in a lady named Tonda Lynn Dickerson. She received an envelope one evening with a bunch of lottery tickets in it, as well as many other employees there. In her envelope was a winning ticket that netted her $10 million. And so let's just recap a little bit. She didn't buy the ticket. She was gifted the ticket. She made a pact with the other employees that they would split the winnings that they had. What do you think Tonda Lynn Dickerson does? My money. Finders keepers, it's my luck, not yours. And the employees are fed up, and they file a a, a lawsuit in the state of Alabama, and the judge agrees that there's a verbal contract here. But here's where the thing that comes in here with the gambling being illegal in Alabama. Any contract that is towards gambling in Alabama is not enforceable. She gets all of it, all of it. Could you imagine being an employee of that Waffle House? I mean, there's other things, you know, Waffle House employees, I mean, that's a hard life, but to, to have that pact and to watch somebody behave in such a manner, in such a bad way, how would you feel about that? Why? When am I gonna get a break in my life like this? 
would lead us into all of those types of scenarios. And this is the kind of behavior that causes Asaph to stumble in his walk of faith. He saw the wicked appearing to get more prosperity in their wickedness, in their comfortability, in their pride, than those who are righteous. And despite that pride and arrogance, it, it almost felt like God was rewarding them, blessing them, and giving them increase, and he's tired of it. He just had, he's just tired of it. He's seen it through David, Solomon. He says, I have in vain kept my heart clean. Lord, I have kept my heart pure. I have washed my hands and innocent. I've done all those things. Like, what the heck, God? I'm trying here. I'm giving you my best. I'm doing all the things that you want me to do. My thoughts are with you. I serve, I tithe, but it seems like all these other people who are wicked, they get much more of an abundance than I do. They have more, they succeed more than I do. And as often we see that Christians are not immune to the area of envy. I suppose that we suspect that we deserve a break or two, some divine edge over everybody else. But when we don't get that, we can often feel cheated and robbed and underappreciated. And it leads us into a reality where bitterness begins to take hold of our lives and we no longer see God as good any longer. This is where Asaph is writing out of. We experience life not as a gift, but a curse. Not a blessing, but a weight. Asaph says, for all day long, I have been stricken. I am rebuked every morning. He says, I see him saying this, I wake up at 5 a.m. every day, Lord. I roll out of my bed. I eat my breakfast. I go into that tabernacle, and I move an organ from this side of the stage to this side of the stage. I write psalms. I read things. I sing. I eat my lunch. I clock in. I clock out. I go home. I eat my dinner. I watch my TV shows, and I go to bed, and it's on repeat. But those guys, they sit in nice castles. They eat the best food. They feast all day long. They hire servants to do the things that they don't want to do. Look at them, Lord. I want that. That's what I want, Lord. And he says that if I would to sh- were to share about how I feel about God right now, I would betray generations because I am not speaking well of your name, Lord. In fact, if I talked about you, I'm leading people away from you. Have you ever experienced that kind of anger in your life against the Lord where you thought there's no way I could even speak well of your name? And here's, and here's what happened. The, the, the word records that there's a moment of awareness that hits Asaph, a moment of discovery that he realizes that all of the things that he was worrying about and complaining about were based upon his perspective, his emotions. He was reading it, leaning into his logic and his understanding, and the Lord in a moment gave him clarity. You're a fool. You're leaning on yourself. And we should not pass over that reality quickly, because that's a grace from the Lord. Many people never get to the reality where they can see that folly in their life. 
That is a gift from God that he has an awareness. And it says that he goes into the tabernacle, into the sanctuary, and we don't know what he, the Lord and him kind of discuss, but we just know that he is a completely changed person afterwards when we read the psalm. He has a different perspective. And so this text teaches us this, that in the midst of those inconsistencies in our life, where we, we don't understand what's going on. That faith can be destroyed unless we are regularly enjoying the presence of God. When we are presented with challenges that exceed our theological understandings and our belief in God, do not look down and be a victim and this is as good as it's going to ever get. I guess I'm not going to ever understand. Or look around you in the world and try to justify and rationalize the things that you see and the people that surround you. But we are to look up to the Lord and to his perspective, and to his understanding, and not our own. Listen to that voice of God. Because it's not wrong, friends. Listen, it's not wrong to have a crisis of faith. It's not. However, it is wrong not to allow that crisis to grow your faith. Asaf seeks the Lord, and in the sanctuary, God reminds him of his goodness, his perspective has changed, and he would argue that if you cannot see good in your future, it is not a problem with God, but it's a problem with your vision. It's a problem with your vision. Jesus very eloquently speaks these words in Matthew 6 about the importance of vision and perspective. He says in Matthew 6 that the eye is the lamp of the body, and so if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light, but if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? How we see things matters. Your eyes, your perspectives matter. So look, if we want to have a fruitful conversation around this area and leave with some fresh insight from the Lord, I think we need to zero in on what would be the most productive area for our growth as believers. And so if we look at this age-old question, like, why do good things happen to bad people? We're concerned about that. But the more honest question, the uglier question that we have to recognize is this. Why not me? Why not me? That's the question that we have to extract from our hearts and our minds. Because, look, let's be honest. Fairness does not matter to us as much as the fact that we, it wasn't us that got it. That's what matters to us. Don't fool yourselves into believing this is somebody else's deal, this is a bad people problem, or this is a God problem, this is a me problem. I don't know if you've ever heard the saying that the only house that you can paint is your own. We would do better in life dealing with our own house and not somebody else's, because this house has a why not me kind of problem. And here's why. There is nobody in this world that we elevate up in our morality in comparison to everybody else than ourselves. If we're honest in the way that we live our lives, in the way that we think, in a scale of goodness and badness, who do you put above you? If you're honest. Now who do you put worse than you? Who's bad compared to you? I'm gonna guess those lists aren't equal. This isn't about other people. This is about us, right? And maybe you're a person that likes justice. You like justice, you like fairness, that's great. We serve a God who's just, right? He wants us to do justice, to be the voice for the voiceless and so forth. But we don't get to judge our God on what he gives to one man and not to another. 
That is a little bit above our pay grade. Lest we all forget that we were doomed to the fires of hell except for the grace and the mercy of a God that reconciled us to the Father. He provided grace and, and, and peace between God and man. So your thoughts on what you're owed and what other people are not seem to be a little bit infantile when we understand that position. Listen, too many Christians are eaten up by this aspect of envy, where they're clinging to God with one hand, and the other hand, they're grasping for life of another with the opposite. Envy robs us from the capacity to enjoy the life that God has given us. It creates an ongoing regret of the life that we've been given. And Asaph says this, he says, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast towards you, God. He said, I was as dumb as an animal, Lord. I was relying on my intellect, on my emotions, on my logic, and all of those things were foolish. They got the best of me, Lord. I recognize that now. And this seems to happen to us all the time. It happens to me where we get just trapped up into our own logic and our own emotions, into our own understandings, and it creates havoc in our lives. And I think it's important that we understand how our culture cultivates this idea of envy in our hearts, right? Because listen, envy is a spiritual illness that plagues us in this image-driven world. It plagues us in an image-driven world. It's important that you understand what an image-driven world is. What it means is this. We, as people, have far too easily exiled ourselves from rich relationships in which in one another we see our inconsistencies, our weaknesses, our quirks, our problems, and those relationships work like this. It's a reciprocal pattern of grace, love, truth, mercy from one to another. That I can be fully known by you. You're fully delighting in me. Those are rich relationships in which the mess of this life can be built upon. They can be endured. But as a culture, we've rejected the idea of vulnerability because we love strength and image more. We value it more than authenticity. And so what happens is we just project an image of ourselves that we want other people to believe. And when we project that image, we project an image that is better than our reality. We project an image that is happier, better, and we know it. We know our falls. We know our weaknesses. We just don't want anybody else to see it. And here's the problem. So is everybody else. And inside of that culture, envy runs rampant. Everybody projecting an image of what people want to believe, and that image is always most likely better than any reality that they're walking in. And because we like distance and not intimacy, all you see is those vacations, that happy family, the smiles on their face, the things that they get, all this stuff, because we desire just mere connection and not intimacy. And what does that do in our hearts? It creates this low-grade gnawing of never being enough. Have you, I mean, I don't know how many are on social media, probably a lot of you, some of you are not, and probably a good idea. But if you're looking at your timelines and your social media, what images are people betraying? Their worst moments or their best moments? The numbers of kids 
statistically, that are battling depression and suicide, self-image issues in this culture is unbelievable. And it's, in fact, due to a lot of this issue of projection and not being able to see the, the, the inner workings and the flaws of people's hearts because we like distance. And so the culture cultivates this idea of envy and it creates a bitterness and where we don't see the blessing of our life. We just see what everybody else is, is, has and that's what we want. Listen, don't let the world rob your joy and the contentment of a life that the Lord has given to you. Don't buy that lie. The story that God has written in your life is the story for you. And the story that is in Bill is God's story for Bill. You don't get to be the book critic that deems one story better than the other. They are all stories that are written for whose glory? His glory and not yours. Asaf says, he says, whom do I have in heaven but you? Whom do I have in heaven but you? There is nothing on earth that I desire but you. Don't get caught up in the whoms of this world, but instead focus on the whom that you have in heaven. A few weeks ago, we walked into a lengthy discussion about this idea of blessing and what blessing really was. And we said that blessing is not prosperity. It is not more, more stuff. It's not a better car. It's not a bigger house. It's not a longer life. It's not more material stuff. What we said a blessing was is simply this, that we have God and he has us. And if we had nothing else in our life, but we had Jesus, our cup would still overflow. We would still be blessed because Jesus plus nothing equals everything. And Asaf is reminding himself of this in this scenario that the reality is, is that I have all that I need in Christ. Do we not forget that we are following the Christ who wanted nothing more out of life but the, hand, the life that the, the Father handed him? He lived a life full and free. He served everyone. He redeemed, he loved, he inspired, he included, he forgave. Do we forget about experiencing God's present in the midst of our emptiness? Do we forget God's grace in our lacking? Do we forget his fullness inside of our void? Do we all not remember praising the goodness of God in the new life that we found in Christ? So what does he owe us? What does he owe us? Asaph says that even if my heart and my flesh may fail, you, O oh God, are the strength of my heart and my portion forever. And when is God our portion? Forever. Forever. My portion is not just on earth. It is in the forever. Many of us get tripped up on this earth in this idea of blessing and happiness, material things on this planet that other people have. And many times that we can feel like that the people are getting those things are the least that deserve those things. They prosper while God's people endure and struggle. And if you ever have that belief, remind yourself of this verse, that you have a portion that is not limited to this earth. It is good and sufficient forever. Do not build up your treasures on this earth and forget that you have something far better in our forever with God. 
In Matthew 6, before Jesus began to speak about the eye being a lamp, he speaks these profound words. He says, do not lay up for yourselves treasure on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasure in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Let your heart treasure the whom that you have in heaven and not the what that you have on earth. I love Asaf. He reminds us in verse 20 that in essence, all of this is like a dream. Have you ever had a dream that you were, you were in the middle of and you woke up and you went, whoa, I'm so glad that that's not my reality. This is what Asaf is saying life is like. That one day we're going to wake up from this dream in the presence of God and we're going to realize this was all but a dream. This is not our reality. The eternal reality for the believer is not here. This is a dream life. This is not our reality. And for those who don't trust in the Lord, who believe that this is the reality, the unfortunate and un, it's, it's excruciating reality is, is that they will not wake up into some nice dream, but into some horrific nightmare. This is not your reality. You have a portion that lasts forever. At the end of all of this, at the end of this life, God is going to give justice to who he, he decides needs justice. He's going to take care of those who mock him and are unfaithful to him. But that's not your worry on what God gives and who God gives judgment on. Our hearts should be concerned that people enter the portion that is forever with us. Don't get caught up in what other people have. You have a portion that's going to last forever. Asaf comes full circle here. It's, I think it's great. He comes full circle in the belief he has this really uh, contradiction of, of, of things that are happening in his life that's making him question his belief, and he's bickering and he's complaining just like we would. But it was in the sanctuary that God reminded him of his goodness, that God's presence woke him up and said, this is not your reality. You are relying on your own logic, on your own emotions, and your own understanding. This is not what I have for you. And in the end, I love, he says this, but for me, it is good to be near God. If I'm not near God, my mind just betrays me. I go crazy. I, my, my logic, my emotions, they just go off. They're off the wire. But I need to be near God. For me, it is good to be near God. And isn't that true for all of us? It is good for us to be near God, to take our Lord as our refuge and our strength that we might speak well of his works. I love that king who looks at us in our follies, but he gracefully guides us with his hand. That we may not know everything, but I will speak of his goodness. There is no better witness on this earth than the believer who can endure the trials and the storms of life and not receive all the trinkets and toys of this world, but endure and say, your name forever, Lord. You are good in the midst of all of this. I will praise your name. That even if my heart and my flesh fail, you, O oh God, are the strength of my heart and my portion forever, no matter what. I think to close today, it would be fitting for us to read those words together as a congregation. Psalm 73 Verse 26, read this with me. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion 
forever. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we just come before you today, and we thank you that you give us a portion that lasts forever. That you bring awareness into our life, Lord, when we are being folly, we are not thinking clear, we're leaning on ourselves. And God, I just pray that in this room, for those who need it, that you would, you would bring an attention to that, that you would give them a moment of discovery that they would just lean into what you have to say about things and not what their inner parts <laughs> say about things. And God, you're a great God who gives us all that we need. Don't let envy rob us from the blessing of enjoying a life that you've given us. We love you, Father, and thank you for all the good gifts that you give us. Let us not cease to praise your name ever. We love you, and we pray this in the beautiful name of our Redeemer, Jesus Christ. Amen.